I just want to get into the word. This weekend is, <coughs> it is um, Heart for the House weekend and I, I, I've come back with, uh, I, I believe a word from God for the church that uh, I've got very few notes uh, because of how I've been feeling. I haven't been able to get my thoughts straight. Even now I'm struggling to gather my thoughts in a one. So I'm just trusting God today to just speak clearly what I feel he's laid on my heart. Um, but uh, in the last eight, eight weeks or so, I've been working my way through First and Second Chronicles, uh, some of First and Second Kings, and, and the history of David and Solomon and the establishing of, of the, the house of God, which is what I believe we are today. We, we are the house of God today. I believe the church that Jesus is building is the, today's expression of the temple of the Old Testament. We are the carriers of the presence of God. The temple of old carried the presence of God. But today, us as living stones, the people of God carry the presence of God. And when we are all together as individual temples of the Holy Spirit, then there's power in that. There's, there's something in that. There's an anointing. There's, there's a flow of God's presence that heals and restores and and rebuilds and reconciles and and, and God I, I believe is is moving in a in an unprecedented way in his church across the world and he wants to I believe fill us as individual temples of the Holy Spirit to overflowing in in new ways in fresh ways that out of our innermost being will come rivers of living water that <laughs> there will be a bubbling forth of the anointing of God that breaks the yokes of bondage, that sets the captives free, that opens the eyes of the blind, that sets at liberty those that are bound and proclaims afresh in our communities the incredible favour of God that is available to us today. Uh, I want to open with two passages of Scripture. <coughs> First Chronicles chapter 22 and First Kings chapter 9. So, let me read to you 1 Chronicles 22, the first five verses. Then David said, this is King David. David said, this will be the location for the temple of the Lord God and the place of the altar for Israel's burnt offerings. So David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel and he assigned them the task of preparing finished stone for building the temple of God. You know, it's interesting. We are all living stones. The Bible tells us we are living stones being built together to make up a spiritual house. And if you study the scriptures about how Solomon's temple, the first official temple structure that was built by King Solomon, if you follow that story and the, the outworking and unfolding of the plans that God had for that temple, we, we read that, that the, the stones were finished at the quarry so that there was not the sound of hammer or chisel at the temple site. I, I believe that's a prophetic thing about how God wants to build and shape our lives as living stones. He wants us in the privacy of our prayer closets. He wants us in the privacy of our homes to be able to chip away, to be able to chisel away, to be able to polish us and hone us and shape us into something beautiful and precious so that our lives will emanate the very aroma of Christ to the world in which we live so that when we come together in forums like this, there's not the sound of argument or strife or frustration or hammer or chisel happening, but there's that beautiful harmony of the body of Christ 
Christ functioning and working together as the living stones and the body parts that we are all designed to be. I found it very interesting that the, the, the stones were prepared away from where the ministry of God was to take place so that our lives would be honed in the privacy of our prayer rooms so that we would have maximum impact out there in our communities. David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel and he assigned them the task of preparing finished stone for building the temple of God. David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors in the gates and for the clamps and he gave more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon had brought vast amounts of cedar to David. David said, my son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. Now come over to 1 Kings chapter 9. So Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had done before at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy. This place you have built where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it for it is dear to my heart. As for you, watch this. If you will follow me with integrity and godliness, as David your father did, obeying all my commands, my decrees and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father David, one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. If you will follow me with integrity and godliness as your father David did. I find that interesting that God would make such a statement as that about King David, Solomon's father, long after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then got involved in the most heinous of premeditated murder plots in biblical history where to cover the sin of his adultery, he set um, uh, Uriah, the, wife, the husband of Bathsheba, up to be surely smitten in battle and his life taken so that David could then lawfully take Bathsheba as his wife. I think it's one of the most hideous, heinous crimes you read of in the Bible. And Nathan the prophet has to come to David to highlight the enormity of the sin that he got involved in. And David, in the midst of this prophetic utterance over his life from Nathan the prophet, where Nathan tells this story of this poor family who had one little lamb and a rich man who had flocks that could outnumber anybody that else that was in the community at the time. He, he said that, that this rich man took this one poor family's lamb and used that lamb as his sacrifice rather than taking from the abundance of his own crops. And David was horrified at the story that Nathan the prophet was sharing with him. And he said, as the king of Israel, he said, I will do to this man if this day's not out what he, it's 
deserved to be done to this man for such a wicked thing. And Nathan eyeballed the king and said, David, you are the man. And he begins to talk to him about his taking of Bathsheba, someone that wasn't rightfully his, and then how he plotted to have her husband killed, who was a loyal, faithful soldier in Israel. The king, the man after God's own heart, plotted such a wicked thing. And David, the guilt and the condemnation that fell upon him at that point, runs before God and grabs the horns of the altar and cries out, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, renew and restore a right spirit within me. That the man who did such wicked things, God now declares, if you will follow me with integrity and with godliness, just like your father David, David didn't though. Then as I, I meditated on this and as I processed it and prayed it through, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, you've got to understand, David kept short accounts with heaven. David was a man who lived out of a repentant heart. David was a man who understood his weaknesses and his shortcomings and he understood the mercy and the goodness of God to work with those who would just surrender to his hand. The Holy Spirit said to me, David was a man who lived life out of repentance. And you know, I believe the enemy has ripped off so many of us through bombarding us with guilt and condemnation and having us all feeling like we're just not worthy, we're just not good enough, we just don't measure up to what God wants for our life and therefore God's blessing can't be released upon us, God's favour can't be experienced because I've just got so many weaknesses, I keep falling into the same habits, I steep embracing the same attitudes but yet we've got to understand repentance is not a living room repentance is a doorway and if we will just like David keep short accounts and recognize I am but dust I am frail I do have so many shortcomings in my life but God I keep coming back to you for the for the blood of the lamb to cleanse me from sin and to make me whole and to restore me and to strengthen me and to help me overcome and every time I do that I walk through a doorway back into the favor of God back into the presence of God and that's how David lived his life and that's why years after his shortcomings and his failures, God could declare he walked with me with integrity and godliness. Because integrity and godliness is not being sin-free. Integrity and godliness is simply acknowledging our weaknesses and acknowledging our desperate need of a good and merciful God to strengthen us and heal us and set us free. If we would just live our Christian life with that sense of God, I am so weak and I am so bound and I am so, so messed up in my thinking. This world that's so broken has so molded me into somebody you never created me to be. But God, I surrender afresh to you. He will take our life and build us. David, King David went down in history as one of the greatest kings to have ever reigned. I love the story of King David. Just before we went away, I was sitting with the uh, Discovering Jesus group, and it's, a, it's been a great group, and <coughs> I was talking to them a little bit about David's journey. But David enters the stage of biblical history as a shepherd boy. And the Bible says he was ruddy. He was, he was, he was a, a ranger. He, he, was, he was a ginger megs. He, 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 was, he was like me. He was a freckle-faced, fair-headed, good-looking not that I'm saying I'm I'm <laughs> I'm unwell. Just 
you know, but he, 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 was a, he was a shepherd boy. And you know, the Lord comes to Samuel the prophet and says to him, you know, I have rejected Saul as king. And that's a story in itself as to how Saul found himself in such a predicament to lose the hand of God on his life. But he said, I've sought me out a man after my own heart. He said, I've found someone who loves me sincerely. I've found someone who wants my will to be done in and through their life and in and through the life of the nation that I've called out. He said, I've found a son among the sons of Jesse. And Samuel, he said, I want you to go and I want you to anoint Samuel. I want you to anoint one of his sons that I show you when you get there. And Samuel arrives in the town and and Jesse brings his seven sons. He had eight, but he brings his seven and Abinadab is first and Samuel immediately looks through the eyes of reason and says, this guy surely is of kingly appearance. This guy surely is the one God has chosen. He's the eldest of the family. He's strong. He's tall. He looks and is built like a warrior. And Samuel takes his flask of oil and steps forward to anoint him. But the Holy Spirit stops him and says, he's not the one. And he says those famous words that we all know, Samuel, don't look as man looks. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You're seeing what looks like. And we, if only we would do our, life, our Christian walk out of revelation, not reason, we would have far more fruitful breakthroughs in our life. Rather than think logically, let's think spiritually and say, God, what are you saying in the middle of this circumstance? Because you're the God that declared you've chosen the foolish things to bring to nothing the things that are wise. You've chosen the weak things to bring to nothing and to show up the things that are strong. So no flesh can boast. You know, and he says, and then, and then Abinadab, the second eldest, comes before him. And Samuel says, well, he's got to be the one. Samuel didn't hear the first word from heaven. Don't look as man looks. And then Shammah comes from the Holy Spirit says, no, he's not the one. And they go through all seven sons. And it, to each one, the Holy Spirit says, he's not the one. Samuel says, well, is these, are these all your sons? Have you got any sons that, oh, well, there's the boy the boy, he's, he's the shepherd. He's out looking after the sheep. He's, he wasn't even a looker. I read something really interesting about King David this week. And I don't know whether we can prove it. You know where he says in Psalm 139, in sin did my mother conceive me. This guy was proposing that that's literal. That David was an illegitimate child. That David was born out of the union of wedlock. That David was born outside the parameters that God had ordained for the family unit. And as a result of that, he was kind of discarded and put in the backdrop. And, and I may come back to that thought in a moment because it was a fascinating thought about what that meant for David. If he was in fact illegitimate, because if he was illegitimate, he couldn't enter the temple of God. It's an interesting, I can't prove it, but I thought it's fascinating. But anyway, David, David is brought in and the Holy Spirit says he's the one. So they anoint David as the new king over Israel. And then through a long, long, long process of character building experiences. You know, it's interesting. God promises us things. But often when he promises us things, everything goes into reverse. Everything just seems to go backwards. Everything just seems to fall apart. We're moving ahead slowly and we think, God, I just want things to move faster than what they are. 
God, I just wish the blessing would come sooner. I wish the breakthrough would come quicker. I wish the healing would flow with greater clarity. God, I, I, it's just everything is so slow and so burdensome. And it's so, I'm moving forward, but I want to move forward faster. And, and, and it's like we kind of think, God, where are you? But God wants to build something inside of us so that he can more effectively do what he wants to do through us. He has to have a vessel that is surrendered. He has to have a vessel that is polished and honed, a vessel that is clean and pure and full of integrity and godliness so that we will represent him. And the Spirit of God comes on David and this anointing, the moment of promise, the, the prophetic, David, you are the next king to reign on the throne of Israel. He's 14, 15 years of age. And then God takes him through some of the most horrendous, unfair, unjust, misrepresented. He was so, so badly treated by Saul. And you follow that journey. Most of us would have given up. Most of us would have said, you know, I, I, just, I, I just can't do this anymore. I mean, we're, God promised this, but it's not happening. It's just too hard to follow Jesus. It's just too hard to fight the fight of faith. It's just too hard to keep pushing through. And so many of us sell ourselves short of God's best in our life because we don't stay the course and fight the fight with tenacity and trust that, God, my steps are ordered by you and I will get to the other side of this thing. I will get over this mountain I will get through this tunnel I will make it out the other side because you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me if only we would just develop some spiritual backbone and just trust that God will never leave us or forsake us but will take us through the valleys of the shadow of death we will get through and we will be bigger people stronger people more filled with power than ever before if we would just stay the course and I thank God David stayed the course he had so many opportunities to get bitter, so many opportunities to get resentful, but he stayed the course and he stayed strong. And eventually, because of his faithfulness, he sits on the throne of Israel. First thing David does is he retrieves the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbolic structure that God told Moses to build and God said, that is where I'm going to house my presence among my people. And he, he said, I want you to build this ark and I want you to separate the ark from the people. And there were three curtains in the tabernacle of Moses that separate. There was the, the inner curtain because the, the ark housed in this room called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place of all. And, uh, you know, he, um, he, he, he lives in that place or he lived in that place and this huge big curtains inches thick separated it and, and enclosed it and then there's an outer court called the holy place and that's shielded off by another curtain so you 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 get through that curtain you still got to get through another curtain to get into the presence of God and and then on the outer court there's another curtain so there's three curtains and the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was, was in there. But 20 years prior to David becoming king, the Israelites foolishly carried the Ark into battle, thinking that the presence of God would go with them. And they, they broke every rule in the book. And of course, they, they suffered an incredible defeat. And the Ark is stolen by the Philistines. But you read it. It's a very, very funny story. The Philistines couldn't get rid of the Ark quick enough. 
They thought they'd captured something great. They thought they had something that would bring blessing, that would bring life, but they were interfering with something that was sacred, that was holy. And, and when you, you read it, it, plagues came upon them, sickness came upon them, and they finally realized, they set up the ark in their temple god, and, and Dagon, their god, was, was there, and they set the ark, and the next morning, Dagon's on his back, the statue of Dagon. And they fixed him up, and the next day, he's back on his back again, and this time he's smashed in three pieces. And they're going, there's something about this ark. And then they're all inflicted with tumours. One translation says it was hemorrhoids. How embarrassing. Is it okay to say hemorrhoids in church? But the ark is gone. The thing that carried the presence of God is gone. David becomes king. And the first thing he realises, we've got to get the presence of God back. We need the presence of God back among the people of God. We need the presence of God back in the house of God. We need the presence of God that brings health and liberty and life and freedom and wholeness. We need the presence. In the presence of God is fullness of joy. He wrote that in one of his Psalms. In the presence of God, there's life and healing and liberty. He said, we need the presence of God back. So he goes to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant, but he's not savvy to what he should do to treat the Ark with respect. He thinks he's being respectful and he commands these guys to build a really nice horse and carriage that's just fit for the Ark of the Covenant. And they put the Ark on a... But you know, if you read your Bible, you know that's not how they were supposed to transport the Ark. The Ark had to be transported by men. It had to be transported by men carrying the ark on poles on their shoulders. And they had to be men who were set apart by God, men anointed by God, men ordained by God. But David just gets it, puts it on this nice cart and heads off, bringing what he believes is the presence of God back to Jerusalem. And then they're just near the house of this guy called Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom was a Gittite. He wasn't one of the people of God. He was a foreigner in the land. This is a fascinating study if you really look into it. And they get near the house of Obed-Edom and it's a rough bit of road and the oxen stumble over maybe some loose rocks on the road and the cart tips and it looks like the ark is going to fall off the cart. And this, this poor guy called Uzzah reaches out and steadies the ark and suddenly a bolt of lightning strikes him dead on the spot. They're all absolutely dumbfounded. They're standing back and what, what just happened? And David gets angry because God struck out at Uzzah. I think we're carrying the, the ark of God back. And, and, you know, but he didn't realize at the time he's going about it all wrong. But the ark still has the presence of God. You've got to treat the presence of God with respect. We've got to treat the presence of God, not with an indifference of heart, but, but with a hunger of heart, with a reverence of heart. We need the fear of God back into our life and not, not to be afraid of God, but that reverential respect before God. And so, so what do they do? They take the ark and they stick it in Obed-Edom's back shed. And he attaches a note to it. Dear Mr. Edom, I've put the ark of the covenant in your shed till we work out what to do with it. Signed, yours truly, King David. And then he puts on the bottom, P.S., whatever you do, don't touch it. So David goes back to Jerusalem, soul searching, wondering what happened, what went wrong. I'm bringing the presence of God back. God, you, you, you want to be holy enthroned in the praises of your people and, and yet your presence is not where your people are. God, what went wrong? He's soul searching and he's just contemplating, God, I, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I'm going about this all wrong. Maybe I've, I've I, you, God, show me, give me. He did the wisest thing you could ever do. He was a king that inquired of God. 
If only we would be people who would inquire of the Lord. So many times throughout his life, you read David inquired of the Lord and the Lord said to do this. David inquired of the Lord and the Lord said to do that. David inquired of the Lord and the Lord said to go this way. And every time he inquired and heard the voice of God and was obedient to the voice of God, the blessing of God flowed. So he's inquiring of God, not thinking out of reason this time, but thinking out of a fresh revelation from heaven and God shows him you went about it all wrong. There's a way in which the ark has to be moved. Meanwhile, Back at Obed-Edom's house, he gets out of bed. He looks out his kitchen window and the corn has grown 10 feet overnight. He looks up onto the hillside and all of his sheep are running around with, with new kids, most of them with triplets. He goes down to the hen house and there's a dozen eggs under every hen and they're all double yokers. He looks out on the other side of the field and the, cow, the cows are taking themselves into the milking shed. The cows are getting themselves ready to give him milk like it's going to flow out of buckets like he has never seen milk before. He goes back into the lounge room and his children are all playing nicely with each other. They're not arguing. They're not bickering. They're sharing. No, you go first. No, 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 I insist. You go first. No, it was, I've already had a turn. You have a turn. He's thinking, what's going on here? And the blessing of God just falls all over. He walks into the kitchen. His wife's cooking bacon and eggs for him. She says, Sonny, sit down. Just relax. Just enjoy the moment. I'm going to put the coffee on. You're just going to have a wonderful day. And he's thinking, I'm in the twilight zone. You know, but the blessing of God comes upon Obed-Edom. You know, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But David gets word of the fact the blessing of God is on the house of Obed-Edom. This Gentile, this, this sinner, this person who is not part of the separated nation of Israel is living under the blessing of the God of Israel. Something was wrong. The people of Israel are living away from the blessing. And here's this heathen farmer who doesn't even know God, just blessed abundantly from an open heaven over his farm. You read the story. It doesn't say he had double yokers or the cows took himself to the shed, but it said his whole farm was blessed. So what does that look like? And David goes, I want that for the nation of Israel. So he goes and he, this time he, he carries the ark on the correct processes. And the ark comes back. Now, watch this. He sets the ark up in a tent that he had prepared. It wasn't the tabernacle of Moses. It was the tabernacle of David. There's three mentions of the tabernacle of David in the Bible. One's in Isaiah chapter 16, the other one's in uh, Amos, I think, chapter 9, and the other one is in Acts chapter 15. The tabernacle of David, the only thing in the tabernacle of David, this tent, was the Ark of the Covenant. To that point, no one could get near the presence of God. To that point, no one could touch the presence of God. Nobody could get close. You had to go through a priest who went through a curtain and then another curtain and then another curtain. And then he would come out and tell you if everything went well. And they'd often tie a rope around his ankle in case he, he did the wrong thing while he was in there and he was struck down by Yuzar, like, like, like Yuzar was. And the presence of God just obliterates the priest. But, but now the ark is in a tent and there's nothing else in the tent and the presence of God is out. Something was happening. You know, I believe with all my heart when I read my Bible that that was a window of prophetic insight to what God was going to do when Jesus came. 
When, the, when, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us the veil of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, it was pulled apart because now we can all come boldly into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. And you know, when that veil tore in two, when Jesus died on that cross, uh, you know, tradition tells us that the priests frantically worked day and night to sew that curtain back together so that God could be rehoused. But it was too late. God was out. He had escaped He was out. He was walking the streets of Jerusalem with his disciples. He was in an upper room pouring out his presence into their soul, into the now the living temples that would carry his presence. He, He was out and about and his power was about to do something fresh and new. And that's why in Acts chapter 15, James stands up in front of the apostles. The context is that the Gentiles are getting saved. Heathens are getting saved. Heathens are giving their life to Jesus and the Jews couldn't cope with it. And they're starting to say, well, you, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. You can't be saved unless you keep the law of Moses. Look, we, we, well, I, I don't, this is, this, theologically, this is unsound. You cannot be a part of who we are. But yet God is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon these Gentile heathens. And he's contradicting everything that these Jewish people had believed and stood for for so long. And James stands up in the context of how do they cope with this? And he says, this is the fulfillment of the prophetic scripture that, that I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. And he said and the nations of the earth will come to me the tabernacle of David did not have divided curtains you think well how did that work why didn't God kill them all because I think it was just a moment of God's mercy where he said here's a foretaste of what I'm going to do here's a foretaste of what is to come when the Messiah arrives and that temple will no longer be there that my presence will be available to everybody David David gets the ark and he brings it and he puts it in the tabernacle of David. And then Psalm 50, verse 2, out of Zion, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines. One of the first things David did when he was king was get the ark back. The other thing he did was he conquered the Jebusites on Mount Jebus. Mount Jebus is today Mount Zion. Mount Jebus is where Jerusalem now stands. The Jebusites had held Mount Jebus, which was Mount Moriah, by the way, which is where Abraham uh, sacrificed or went to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God, which is another whole sermon in itself. But Mount Moriah became Mount Jebus, and the Jebusites were an impenetrable fortress that had never been conquered. Even during the conquest of Joshua, the Jebusites had never been defeated. That was one fortress that Joshua just did not take, could not take, for some reason could not overcome it. And they were so confident of their impenetrable position that they used to position lame people and blind people as their guards. And it was an act of mockery to threatening nations who said, we're going to take the Jebusites. The blind, the lame would be set there as the guards on the post. But David, anointed by God in the power of the Holy Spirit, operating out of revelation from heaven, not out of reason, walks up on the Mount Jebus and takes the whole thing. It becomes Mount Zion. He pitches the tabernacle of David. He puts the ark in there and heaven opens above the people of God. The presence of God. The presence of God is so rich and so permeating. And the tabernacle of David is characterized by worship and music and dancing and singing. In fact, when he carried the ark back into Jerusalem, 
The Bible tells us he was dancing in the street in his underwear and his wife got really embarrassed. And she starts to get into him, give him a real serve. And then he says those famous words, woman, I will become even more undignified than this. You have no idea what took place today. The presence of God is back. The blessing of God comes with it. The favor of God comes with it. We need the presence of God. And you know something? (coughs) The tabernacle of David is a foretelling of the church. It's a prophetic forerunner of the church. The church should be filled with life. The church should be filled with song. The church should be filled with power and anointing that breaks every yoke and sets captives free. It's the anointing that we need. And you know, we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. And when we are all united together in this one place, the power of God is multiplied. It's multiplied. We are carriers of the presence of God. <coughs> David, then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he goes on, he becomes a military genius. Leads Israel, one victory after another. He leads the nation into breakthrough, into fulfill promises, into... power that God had declared over them. David takes Israel to a whole new level of significance on the political map and they begin to stand out like never before. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read when God had given David peace from all his enemies around about that he sat in his palace and he said the tent or the, the presence of God, the ark of God, he said lives in a tent Yet here I am in this glorious palace. Nathan the prophet says to him, go and do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. But that night the Lord comes to Nathan and says, I want you to go back and tell David, don't do whatever your hand finds to do. Do what I tell you to do. David, I think it's nice that you want to build me a house. But David, he said, it's not for you to build me a house. I've got that set for your son Solomon. He's going to build the house. He's going to build the house. However, such was his love for God. This is what I want to bring this to as I try and land this. I've been a bit all over the shop. Like I said, I haven't, <coughs> I haven't prepared notes like I normally would. Such was his love for the house of God. Such was his passion for the presence of God that he accepts he's not the one to now build this magnificent temple that would house his God. Such was his love that he makes generous preparation for the next generation. He makes generous preparation. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. My son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the task before him is huge. The temple that he is to build is magnificent. It's going to be so impacting and so influential. He needs help. I'm not the one to build it, but I can help make preparation for it. I can build for the next generation. I can build for the next next dispensation. I can build for the next move of God. I can can build so I can hand over the baton. can build so that God can do something fresh and new in a new day, a new time with a new anointing and new methods. 
1 Chronicles chapter 29, we read, Then King David turned to the entire assembly and said, My son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. The work ahead of him is enormous, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals. It is for the Lord God himself. (coughs) Using every resource at my command, he said, I have gathered as much as I could for building the temple of my God. David, David had influence. David could pull favors from all over the land. Kings that he had helped, kings that he had protected, kings that he had spared. He pulled in those favors and he gathered so much material as the king of Israel. Now there is enough gold, he said, enough silver, bronze, iron and wood, as well as great quantities of onyx, other precious stones, costly jewels and all kinds of fine stone and marble. And now, listen to this, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This is in addition to the materials I have already collected. You see, what David collected wasn't actually his. What David collected, he, he, just, he just wielded a little bit of weight. Well, the king's asking for it. We better give it. The king of Israel who has provided for us needs it. We better provide it. We need to pay back what he's done for us. David pulled in all these, these favors and gathered all of this stuff. Then we come to this interesting experience in David's life. Pride begins to fill his heart. This is the man who walked with integrity and godliness. Pride fills his heart. And he says, I want to count how many are in my nation. So he takes a census. Joab, his war warrior, his, his war chief, says, David, don't do this. You see, there's something, there's things that kings are not allowed to do that reign over God's people. A man could only count what was his own, couldn't count what was someone else's. And David's trying to count a nation that wasn't his. The nation of Israel belonged to God. And only God could count and number his people. Joab says, don't do it. But David wouldn't listen. So he goes ahead and all of a sudden the anger of God burns against David and David knows it. Conviction hits his heart. I've done the wrong thing. He comes before God and says, God, I am so sorry. God says to him, I'll give you three choices. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months where your enemies will take everything. They'll slaughter you. They'll, they'll, they'll ransack. They'll plunder. You will lose so much. Or you can have three days. Three days where plagues will hit the land. David chose the third one. 70,000 people died in Israel over three days because of David's sin. David gets before God so remorseful and says, God, this is not their fault. This is mine. God, they didn't do anything to deserve this. It was me. Take it out on me and my household. And God withdraws his hand. And the angel of death appears. And the angel is seen by David at the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. He says, I want you to go to the threshing floor of Arona and I want you to buy his threshing floor and I want you to build an altar there and I want you to sacrifice to me to get this right. It's a moment of repentance in David's life. He goes to Arona and Arona greets him because he's the king. He says, I want to buy your threshing floor. And Arona says, take it, your majesty. 
It's yours. I gifted it to you. Do whatever it is to appease your God. Do whatever it is you need to do to get right with your God. And David looks and says these incredible words. He says, Arona, I will buy it from you at the full price because I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. There's a goldmine of truth in that. I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. When we give into the building of God's house, when we give into the extension of God's kingdom, when we give, I believe God is calling us to give sacrificially. He's calling us to give, not out of our abundance, but even out of our lack. He's calling us to go over and above what we would normally do. I felt challenged with this miracle offering that we are receiving after I finished preaching this morning. I felt challenged. The Lord said to me, I don't want you to give what you've budgeted. I want you to double what you've budgeted. Because I budget for this miracle offering. We set money aside every week and we ear tag it. That's for the miracle offering when the miracle offering happens. And I was comfortable with that. And I felt the Lord say to me, I want you to double it. I want it to hurt. I want you to feel it. You know, because I want you to know that you can't outgive God. You can't sow in to the kingdom of God uh, with, with your leftovers and expect the blessing of God and the favor of God to flow. He said, I don't want you to give to the Lord. That's what costs you nothing. I want you to feel it. And so Margot and I have already given this week. We've deposited our offering, which did it hurt. It's stretched. We're in a moment right now where I kind of have a budget challenge personally. But I just felt the Lord say, I want you to go over and above. And then David goes on and he says this. He says, I'm giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This is in addition to the building materials I've already collected. I'm donating more than 112 tons of gold. I hope you brought your gold with you this morning. And I don't mean two or one dollar coins. <laughs> I'm giving all these tons of gold and Ophir, 262 tons of refined silver to be used for overlaying the walls of the buildings and for the other gold and silver work to be done by the craftsmen. Then he says, now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord God today? The church is his house today. The church is his body on the earth today. The temple of old housed his presence His body today houses his presence. We are his body. I believe with all my heart, and I shared this, I think, a few weeks before we went away. There's a lot of spooky people today that avoid accountability. They avoid... I'm going to run out of time here. Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor at Ephesus, he said, I want you to encourage your people with good teaching. Everybody wants encouragement. Everybody wants that, that come alongside and support and encourage and motivate. But he doesn't just finish there. He says, I want you to encourage your people with good teaching. I want you to adjust, correct, and rebuke. That can't take place if we live in this ethereal world of, well, I don't go to church. I, I'm a part of the universal, invisible church. Well, let me tell you something, folks. This broken world does not need an invisible church. It needs a tangible 
church. It needs a church that carries the presence of God. It needs his hands and his feet that literally touch you. I remember as a young Christian sitting in a prayer meeting and I was just crying out for God to to know him and experience him and somebody came up behind me and put their hand on my shoulder and I tell you, it was like the power of God went through me and I thought it was the hand of God on my shoulder and eventually I opened my eyes and turned around. It was just a friend who had been discipling me and encouraging me. But I thought I learned a lesson in that moment. That was God with skin on. That was God touching me through him. The world that we live in today need a, a physical church that will hug and embrace and hold and care and comfort like we are his love poured out upon the world. We are to carry the aroma of Christ. What do you smell like this morning? What do we smell like today? <clears throat> you read the New Testament, the church that Jesus is building is made up of assemblies like this all around the world. His, his expression in every part of the globe, even to the ends of the earth, even to the ends of the earth, his presence will permeate and he does it through you, a living stone, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God today. We are the reunited tabernacle of David today that God said he will rebuild and, and the nations of the earth will come and freely experience the presence of God as they did under the tabernacle of David. It was only a short window because Solomon built the temple. The ark was put back behind the curtain. But it was like God saying, this is where I remain till my son comes. But I gave you a taste by being out there in the open for you to know and experience and feel me in the process.